uh, pop quiz. So here's the notes on, here on the slide. We have moved into this topic right here to be created in the image of God includes being gendered. And last week we ended our time on two reasons why God invented gender. So pop quiz, anybody remember what one of the two reasons he created us male and female? That's right. So, so how are we going to obey the creation commission to be fruitful, multiply, fill, and subdue the earth? So reproduce and produce. And so you, men can wear red flannels uh, at church. Creation commission, yes. And there was a second reason, which is even more important than that one. Porter. To reflect Christ in the church. That's right. The gospel. So it's important to remember where we ended last time. And I can actually bring it up for us. Why does the binary gender of humanity exist? Reason number two, the gospel. So we, we can't lose the message of the gospel in all the details. Remembering that from God's eternal plan, his gospel plan to rescue and redeem wayward sinners all along at some point in eternity past, if you can speak that way, the Trinity decided that God the Son would become incarnate flesh so that he would live, die, and rise for the sins of his bride. And then gather to himself for all eternity the church or his bride. And so the argument here in Ephesians 5, when you read that passage, is that the mystery of marriage, which is given to us in Genesis chapter 2, is so that we can obey the Lord and live out the great commission, or rather the creation commission, fruitful, multiply, fill, and subdue the earth, but the Reason of all reasons is so that a husband and wife, when you look at the way a husband loves his wife and the way that a wife submits to and respects her husband, you understand who Jesus is better and you understand who the church is better and you understand the gospel better by looking at human marriages, looking at Christian marriages. And so that is a front and center reason when we're going to get into talking about uh, being a man and masculinity today, on page 41 of the notes that you received tonight, we can't lose sight of the context, and it's a gospel context. Well, uh, as we do, uh, don't stop reading your notes, please. So the, the focus of our attention this evening as we're thinking about gender is now we're going to focus on man. What is a man and what is a man for? So what is a man and what is a man for? So open time. What, what are different perspectives, definitions, reasons that the world gives around us of what a man is 
and what a man is for. Anybody know what a man is? Sam. Oh, Sam, you need to have a, a mic. So what does the world say a man is and what is he for? Uh, to flip what Matt Walsh said, um, it would be a biological full adult human male. <laughs> That's what a man is. Um, what is he for? So you're looking from a worldly perspective. Yes. Um, a worldly perspective is... Um, Maybe a provider, if you would. Okay. Somebody to bring home the bacon. <laughs> um, uh, in some cases, extreme cases right now, uh, a bit of a whipping boy. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, that's good. That's great. What else? I think we can multiply perhaps many perspectives on what the world would say a man is and a man is for. Porter. They would say a man is an oppressor. Yep. I feel oppressed because you said that. What, what else? What does the world say a man is and a man is for? Mandy. I was going to add to that and say privileged, like from the worldly perspective. Okay. Um, I think a lot of women especially see them as someone to be used. Um, go do the hard labor, go do, you know, go provide for me, whatever. Um, make me feel good, be there for me when I want you to be, but don't be there when I don't want you to be. What else? What are some other perspectives? How about from an LGBTQ plus perspective? What is a man? What is a man for? Over there, Bo, behind you. Um, men is just a gender. Okay, yep. What else? Mandy, one more. I was just going to say from the perspective of a lot of other cultures, like I'm thinking traditional Mexican cultures, maybe Indian, like there's a lot of more traditional cultures. A man's job is to be in charge, to not be questioned, and to um, be served. Um, and it, it is not his job to serve or necessarily, you know. Well, those are all uh, very helpful examples, and we can multiply more. Um, let, me ask, let me ask some more questions before we actually get into what I have written here. Um, good word or bad word? I, I used it as a cuss word last time. I know there were so many gasps. Uh, patriarchy. Very bad. Yeah, very, very bad. Um, it's undefined. But the, the patriarchy, usually the definite article is in front of the, the patriarchy is an, is an evil in society. Um, how about toxic masculinity? Good word or good? I mean, it's inherently because it says toxic. Uh, how often do you hear about toxic femininity? Exactly zero times. 
Just interesting, interesting perspective. So let, let's think together just for a few, for a few moments. Uh, what does the world say a man is and a man is for? Uh, in what ways would the unbelieving world answer this? So we've discussed many times, but it's, it bears repeating, a man and masculinity are fluid, right? So, so in the West, men can have babies. Men can be pregnant. Uh, so, so it is, is said. Uh, man, uh, a man and masculinity are fluid. They, masculinity is a social construct, not bound by biological gender. So you can be uh, a man trapped in a woman's body or vice versa. So in that, the ancient revival of that um, pagan religion called Gnosticism, which we've talked about quite a bit here, that your physical self and your non-physical self can be separate and different. That you can, um, you're not bound by your biological gender, is what the world would say. A man or masculinity is really whatever we want it to be, is how many in um, the world would say today. So patriarchy is an undefined slur that you really don't know what it means, but it's used in a bad tone of voice. And it's a broad label applied to really anybody, and you just know it's bad because people tell you it's bad. So it's an undefined slur that at minimum indicates men, usually white men, repress, suppress, and oppress women and other sexual minorities, probably also people of color, and anyone who sees and believes in a difference between men and women or roles for men and women and the like, is viewed as patriarchal. And therefore, what is wrong with society, chivalry is misogyny, uh, that's what's wrong with society, is any patriarchal perspective. And it used to be that there was chivalry, that men would show courtesy towards women by opening the door, um, even standing up when a woman came in or left a room or something along those lines. But now, anything that would show courtesy towards a woman is considered misogyny, which is dislike or prejudice against women, which is a, a deeply sad and, and bitter irony of how that, how that view is, is used. Um, the term patriarchy, though, by definition, means father rule. And Christianity is patriarchal by definition. It's patriarchal by definition because we are saved because of and worship and serve our heavenly father. We have a father in heaven who rules us. Christianity is, by definition, patriarchal. So you have to think way back to the very beginning, the first two classes where we talked about the cultural war that's waging and those big fancy terms that are coming out, especially through academic critical theory and its varieties. That what's, what's wrong with the world is the cultural majority, the hegemony. And the hegemony is, at least in the West, a certain skin color, a certain gender, and a certain religious affiliation, white, male, and Christian. And so if Christianity is patriarchal by definition, then if you can make patriarchy a slur or a bad word, a derision in a term of, of, um, of indictment against somebody... That undermines the foundation of the biblical notion that we worship and serve God the Father. And think about what we call Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. 
And so we have to just think about the sound bites that get thrown out and unthinking. And interestingly, we can't forget that the devil is also a patriarch. He's just a wicked patriarch. Think about how Jesus rebukes the uh, religious leaders saying that you are of your father, the devil. Uh, there's some a group of guys I meet with on Thursday mornings and we're going through a book. And one thing that this book highlighted that I thought was really helpful is they basically argue that um, when you look at history, history and scripture reveal, it's not a question if men will rule, it's a question of what kind of men will rule. Either men submitted to King Jesus and bowing the knee to him, or men submitted to without even necessarily knowing it, their father the devil. And so the question is not who's going to rule, it's what kind of man is going to rule. Now that is a blanket statement. There, there are various female um, political leaders, but the way that uh, leadership is used in scripture, both uh, personal leadership in the home and in the church especially, is going to be good men or, or wicked men. And you think about how scripture uh, places in 1 Timothy 3 character qualifications on any man in leadership, that the church is supposed to look for character qualities before ability. So character precedes competency in the Bible. But So patriarchy is a bad word, but we have to understand that Christianity is patriarchal. Toxic masculinity, also an undefined slur that paints a picture that certain types of masculinity are toxic, but you actually don't know if you're being a toxic male until you're assigned that wonderful title. And then it's so elastic and, and fluid and rubbery that you can just apply it to anything you don't like about guys. So it's an undefined slur that paints a picture that certain types of masculinity are toxic. There's no cultural discussion or counterpart regarding toxic femininity. And um, since this is a phrase that is undefined and squishy, it could be hurled at any man for anything. Testosterone is what is wrong with the world leading to competition, war, and oppression, especially of women, and the general social ills that we face. If you have economic problems, it's because of toxic masculinity. If there's environmental problems, it is certainly because of toxic masculinity. And if there's any cultural problems, it's also because of toxic masculinity. It becomes this junk drawer term that you can use for problems in the world. So what's wrong with the world from not all the world's perspective, but thinking about the West increasingly, at least at the social media public level, what's wrong with the world is men and masculinity. So if you re remove and replace the hegemonic patriarchy, all will be right with the world. Um, anecdotally, I, in seminary, I took a class on, pre on how to do premarital counseling. It was a huge lecture hall, mainly filled with counseling students, and there was five of us uh, MDiv students sitting up in the corner. And the uh, professor lecturing concluded that what makes a marriage good is that the more the man takes on feminine attributes and adopts domestic qualities, often associated with the female, the happier the wife is in the marriage. That was taught in one of my classes. And that was based on social, scientific, statistical studies on marriages of what women have said would make them feel happier around the home. 
So what's wrong with the world and households, men and masculinity? Um, but there's a sign here of cultural incoherence and contradiction. If gender is a social construct, not bound to your biology, why is it that only cisgender heteronormative men are singled out? So it's a contradiction on the face of it. Now remember, so, so cisgendered, don't adopt that title for yourself. But to be cisgendered means that your sexual desires and your uh, presentation um, matches your biological hardware. That just means that you were born a man and think you're a man, and you're born a woman and you think you're a woman. That's called being cisgendered. And heteronormative just means that you are attracted to the opposite sex and desire to perhaps marry the opposite sex. But these new fancy terms are used to describe us. So if gender is a social construct, why is it that only cisgender heteronormative males are singled out? Can a trans man, so you always have to flip it. So it's a biological woman who thinks she's a man. Can a trans man um, also uh, be accused of toxic masculinity? I, I don't think so. I haven't, not, not that I surf the webs big time in these chat rooms and like check that stuff out. I haven't heard it yet. Can a trans woman, so a biological man, can he be recused of and impervious to the charge of being toxic masculinity because he now says that he's a, a woman? And then can you just dodge those accusations by changing your gender on the fly? <laughs> Try it. So there, there's cultural confusion and there's incoherence and contradiction because at root, it is nonsense. And so that, that's why it's, it's contradictory. But, but what I want you to see is, is when you listen to the news, read the news, listen to the podcast, watch the YouTube influencer, listen to TikTok and Instagram and just all the stuff that is just floating around, words can get thrown around. They do. But they don't get defined. And so a lot of times, the way that humans work is we just hear language used and see how people respond, and then we adopt their responses to those terms without actually stopping and thinking, maybe patriarchy isn't the evil that we've been taught it is. And maybe toxic, toxic masculinity is a straw man of just this fictitious guy. Are, are, there, are there bad guys out there? 100% just as much as there's bad women out there, 100%. And so these terms get used, and so we, I don't want us to be seduced and lulled into just simply um, embracing these ideas without actually thinking about them. Now, that said, there's still the no notion of a man and what is he for. What about Clint Eastwood, Rambo, and Arnold? So there's, there's still the idea out there, though it's, it's less so, of that there's the, the man who's the self-made lone wolf. I think as generations age, the younger generations are, the less um, Arnold and Commando is the icon of masculinity. Anybody? Only me. Okay. But that solitary lone wolf, Clint Eastwood, in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and more, used to be a definition of what it was to be a self-made man. Okay, question. 
Let's think about media. I want you to think about cartoons and sitcoms. Question and answer time. Don't read your notes. I love you. Um, how do, what are the stereotypes of men, women, and families in sitcoms and major cartoons? I, I know there's a bunch, but what are some, some thing of the leading ones? Yes, I agree. Um, a couple exceptions. Father knows best, and he's the leader. The dad is wise, instructive, and caring for his family. If you were raised watching Leave it to Beaver or Father Knows Best, raise your hand. Okay. Okay, cool. There's, there's, there's a commonality of hair color. If you've never heard of Father Knows Best, raise your hand. <laughs> okay, if, if, you've, if you've never heard of Leave it to Beaver, raise your hand. Okay. Please, yeah. So that's good. We're all chuckling and we're all giggling, right? And uh, we just, I, we found out, I think it was the first class that I'm not, what was the word that I wasn't, that I'm not like supposed to. No. Like if you didn't open the door. If you didn't open the door. If you didn't pick up the check. If you didn't uh, offer your coat to a woman when, when you were supposed to. That was just, now if you do that, it's, it's like you're, you're bringing shame. I'm, I'm assuming that I'm, 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 ex I'm exerting authority over that woman by this poor little thing by handing her my coat or my jacket. So many of us, you know, we, we chuckled in that statement, but we were raised on a different bus. And that bus hasn't detoured. And so what some of us have seen is we've seen culture go. And now it's like trying to come back. And so it makes a lot of sense to us. And so a lot of us older folk have been mocked and ridiculed because we're stuck in our ways. And we're, we're, you know, we're old school and we did watch Father Knows Best. And so we appear to be foolish and unknowledgeable because we're not hip and fresh and cool with what's going on in society today. And so this is really great, and I just kind of wanted to point that out because that's the, that's the common thing that I've seen. My children are in their 30s, and so I've raised, I've raised kids, and, uh, and we've kind of gone through this. And I've seen our kids who were on a, a different bus than some of you in this room. They, they, their detour wasn't as far, and so it was easier for them to kind of come back. So I just wanted to kind of point that out because 
That's something that I think we miss when we have this discussion. Sorry to take so much time. No, great, great input, because the, the reason I want to bring this up is uh, this is cultural discipleship. So the, the, the music that we listen to, the movies that we watch, um, you, you can go around the room and say, hey, if, if uh, you could be um, one actor in a movie or live in a certain world for a day, you know, who would you, who would you want to be? And a lot of people might have, you know, have an answer to that question. They enjoyed watching this cartoon or this show or this thing growing up or something along those lines, and they wish their family was like that or they had that superpower or whatever it is. People have that. So, but we get discipled um, by those by what we watch passively without realizing it. Mandy, you had one. Um, when I was in college, one of my teachers showed us a couple documentaries, and one of them was on women in media and how perception and the ideal has changed. And as everyone in here can probably guess, you go back... 60, 70 years, and it was the normal shape, full-figured woman. And then as the years have gone, that, that ideal woman has gotten skinnier and skinnier and skinnier to the point that now it's like paper thin in Hollywood, right? What was interesting and something that I had never heard discussed before is we watched another documentary on men, and you go back to Humphrey Bogart or the men of the 1950s, and you look at what were like a secret agent and you have a normal-shaped man, no bulging muscles, just a normal-shaped guy, kind of on the skinny side, holding a small handgun. And then you look through the years, and you get bigger and bigger muscles and bigger and bigger guns until you get the Arnold Schwarzeneggers and the Sylvester Stallones with, that are just, and the Thors, am I right? That are just bulging, and they don't look natural, right? And I just, that was really interesting to me, especially to see, because I'd heard it of the women, right? Women are oppressed. But the guys today are being compared to Thor, right? And that's no more fair than comparing a normal woman to some piece of paper shaped woman, um, you know? So yeah, I'm well, sorry. yeah, it's, it's very interesting actually to do standards of beauty and, and consider especially like... Uh, Women tend to be the pinnacle of a standard of beauty and how that has changed over the years. Uh, but Hannah, go ahead. A different angle, but still in media, is the absent father and the strong single mom raising all the kids and the dad is just not in the picture at all. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's perceived as a good thing. Yeah. Any, any other... Well, let, uh, let's move forward, actually. So here's some of my comments. So... If you think about a sitcom, they usually have like a trope is the fancy word for it, but it's kind of, uh, there's a cookie cutter template that you can expect whether you're watching The Simpsons or watching whatever show. The sitcom dad usually is the beer-swigging buffoon of the family unit who garners the disrespect of his wife, condescending gaze of his daughter, and the rebellion of his son. The sitcom home inverts and reverses God's given order. Children are wiser and more in the know than the parents, along with any homosexual aunts or uncles they have. The wife is wiser and more in the know than the husband, and thus the cisgendered, heteronormative man, husband, father is, I didn't finish that sentence, is not. He, he is one who's, who's not in the know. So for example, Homer Simpson, if you watch The Simpsons, Al Bundy married with children, 
go back to the 90s, or Phil Dunphy from Modern Family. So he, he was a caring dad, if you, if you watch that show, but he was more of the buffoon. And that contrasts with Ward Cleaver from Leave it to Beaver, Andy Griffith, Charles Ingalls from Little House on the Prairie, I've watched all of those, and Jack Pearson from This Is Us, and Bandit Healer from Bingo and Bluey. Are there, does anybody know what Bingo and Bluey is in here? Yes. Harmeyer, you don't know yet? Oh, buddy. Okay. So there, it's, it's not uniform. There are shows out there where you have um, a surprisingly biblical-ish representations of man and masculinity, even today in some shows, but by and large, the sitcoms, which are the mindless entertainment that we watch for 27 minutes, uh, whether it's a cartoon or show, present the buffoon. Here's something else to think about. Think about superheroes. This is happening in Star Wars, if you watch those, if you watch the DC Universe or the Marvel Universe. Superheroes, in terms of the cinematic movies, are currently being replaced with female superheroes. So Hulk is gone and you have She-Hulk. And uh, now the new Thor is Chris Hemsworth and his bulging bicep is, is second to, what's her face, female Thor. And what's her name? Yeah, Natalie Portman, Thor, Thoris. But, but, but here's what's happening is they're rebooting the universe, but now they're having all female superheroes. And here's the thing. Think about what the template of a superhero is. Usually he was the altruistic, although often unmarried loner and always childless, mostly, the altruistic, other-oriented, great power, strength character who fights evil and rescues the oppressed. That's the general template of a superhero. So now what's happening in the last, especially the last five years, as Marvel closes out their cinematic cycle and is booting the new one, they're retiring all of the guys, and then you don't have Iron Man, you have Iron Woman, and just you feminize every single one. But what is this communicating? What does this communicate to my five daughters if they, if they watch those shows? It communicates that now it's the woman who is to be the altruistic, often unmarried, loner, and childless. She has great power. She has great strength. She has great character. She fights evil and rescues the oppressed. But um, that becomes the pinnacle of what womanhood should be. And the men aren't needed to do that. But there was a time, similar to what Bo was saying, where... Uh, I mean, comic books weren't Christian, superheroes weren't Christian, but what they were doing is they were cultivating in boys who were growing up reading those comics that it was good to be altruistic and to die and get hurt so that other people could be safe and have life. And that's, that's getting removed. Um, the devil hates God's image bearers, and he, the devil hates God's gospel plan. He does all that he is permitted to distort, let me get us together, to distort, disparage, disregard, and deny God's created order. So we talked about last time how um, the importance of gender and the household and how gender exists so that we're able to obey, being fruitful, multiply, fill and subdue the earth. And um, if 
the devil is able to destroy what a man is and what a woman is. He destroys the home, and the home and the household is the, they're the atoms that all bind together to make up the universe of the kingdom of God. Because households join together, Christian households join together to create churches, and then many households create to get, congregate together to create societies and more. And so if Satan can invert, change, and distort all of those things, he's able to destroy all of human society. Time to get into the Bible. Uh, before we move into the Bible, any, any uh, questions regarding just the, the, the varied world's perspective? It's not monolithic, but it is changing um, how masculinity and femininity is, is portrayed. more than a comment. Um, one time I was at a, a service that the pastor's wife spoke on Mother's Day and basically gave a sermon that God is mother versus father. So um, I don't know how that fits in with this, but um, it's kind of unsettling in my mind. That's the, that's the exact response you should have. That's the Holy Spirit alerting to you that this is not biblical. Yeah, 100%. Um, uh, scripture everywhere. We'll, yeah, actually, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that in a moment. But um, and I need to say something now. Scripture God defines himself as male in Scripture. Now, when we... Uh, so father and son... And then if you've been around on Sundays, we've heard Jesus refer to the Holy Spirit as a he. So God could have chosen to refer to himself as it and have been gender neutral, but he doesn't. He's a he. Um, we will see a little bit later, maybe this evening, where uh, if we... Well, God refers to himself as a, as a mother hen flowing over her, her eggs. Uh, to make sure that they're safe. He does not want you to think that he is actually a sky chicken with sky eggs. He's not. He's not. So that was really poor handling of scripture. She shouldn't have been up there. Preston. So I think a, a lot of times we can look at this and see what's happening, and especially in the media and Hollywood. And we tend to think they're, they're all out to get us, right? But it's more of a gradual intake and, and changing the, the mind and, and you kind of alluded to that, that they're following their father and their father's influencing them in a, in a different direction than our father's in influencing us. Just a couple of weeks ago, I went to a, a programming conference in which the keys the keynote speaker was one of the writers, original writers, longtime writers of The Simpsons. And he talked a lot about their, their writing process and, and you know, the last 30 years of their show and how long it's been on forever. But it was really interesting because you didn't get any sense whatsoever that there's anything on their mind of, of wanting to, you know, 
that say disparage men. But their mindset is that it's funny to do so, right? And they'll do anything to do it, but it's not like, oh, these guys like The Simpsons are out to, to belittle men and, and you know, squash it and, and get rid of Christianity and all that kind of stuff. But I think it's just that, you know, we're against the powers and principalities, not necessarily the individual people out there. That's an excellent observation. So just this, if you were here at church last Sunday, preached on the devil was in point number two. And one of the scriptures is in Corinthians, it talks about that he's taken people captive to do his will. And, um, or the language in Ephesians 2 of following the prince of the power of the air, the course of this world, the pattern of this world, there's, there is a passive component to it where this person is not waking up in the morning and swearing allegiance to Satan, hiding their pitchfork, and then going about their work. I mean, maybe some people, but I think by and large, it's people just simply, they're believing a delusion. And a delusion, by definition, is a fixed false belief. And so they, they may not intentionally, like I, I do think they believe what they're saying, most of them. So that's a, that's a really good point. We, we um, well, it's, it's, we destroy lofty opinions and strongholds in every argument with the gospel. Great observation. Was this keynote funny? Okay, all right. <laughs> um, question for you real quick. As Christians who see TV shows, music, movies, media that are more and more and more like taking that image you talked about of like the, how men should be and all these things and really turning it this direction, how should we as Christians respond to that kind of media? Should we ignore it? Should we block it? Should we not watch it? I don't know if that makes sense. Like, how do we, especially as young people who are in media all the time, respond to things like that? Yeah, Alexis, that's a great question. So the, the key answer would be discernment. And um, some of you have heard me say this before. I, I had a friend who would, if they watched a show with the kids, they'd play a game called Spot the Lie, which annoyed the kids because the dad was always pausing the TV. But But if there's... The, the, whether it was the commercial selling you something or just the cartoon or the sitcom or the movie, whatever they're watching, you would pause it because he's sitting there thinking. So he's not passively absorbing, but he's actively thinking about what's happening. And like, okay, that's, that's actually the inversion of the Bible. But uh, part of stereotypes, the stereotypes are funny. And so we laugh at the buffoon dad. And it probably is a really funny joke. But so he would pause it and say, okay, kids, let's play spot the lie. Where is it? And try to help them begin to discern and think biblically about what they're watching. Now, wait a second. So it presupposes you actually know your Bible well enough to be able to spot a lie and not be tricked by a lie. So that would be one thing, is to, to be discerning and to be wise, and then to think about how, since bad company corrupts good morals, um, it may be that watching this show or listening to this band is just not good for your soul. And so that would be between you and the Lord conscience issue that you would, would need to exercise. But especially for parents these days, I, um, I mean, talk to Preston how to do it, but you need to have your phone on lockdown for your kids uh, to know what they are getting media-wise. And I'm actually serious. Preston's got really good information on, on that. But we need discernment. And one thing to be aware of, too, is... 
storytelling, think of it, think of it this way. The, there's different literary genres in our Bible, but the predominant genre is narrative. This comes to us as story. And we are storytellers by design. And so we love a good story. We tell a story when we get together. How was your day? You tell a story. And the stories shape our perceptions because God designed us that way. Well, Satan also knows that. And so stories are endearing to us. So the commercial sells you the truck by telling you a story about what your status will be like and the fun you can have by having this truck. So I mentioned Modern Family, that, that sitcom. So a, a key thing that was new with Modern Family, there were some other shows, but this was the most popular show that had a gay married couple as key figures in this show. And uh, super funny, super endearing. It was a f- comedy show. So every sense of defense that you have is broken down because you enjoy these two guys. And you feel like they're your friends and you're friends with them. And so you get that desensitization. And so that's part of guarding our heart and monitoring how we're responding to people and saying, okay, I'm laughing at that and I'm enjoying this. And this is actually why Jesus went to the cross to die for these sins. They're entertaining me right now. And it's also why Jesus is coming back to vanquish his enemies. That perspective helps spot the lie. Um, and then knowing that these two guys need the gospel and need to get saved. Really good question. Okay, let's advance. Moving forward here, page 42. Scripture's description of man and masculinity. Couple things. We're going to be getting into Genesis 2 and 3 soon. So if you want to turn your Bible, please do so. But I want to put some guardrails up for us when we get into this conversation now about biblical manhood and womanhood. And one of the ways that God designed it, you can't talk about one without the other, and you really can't understand one without the other as part of God's design. And so part of your understanding, a definition of a man is he's defined in contrast to a woman and vice versa. So that's something that we need to be aware of. Um, So there's also two ditches of error without the guardrails on the road that we can fall into when you discuss men and women. One of them is extreme sameness, and one of them is extreme difference. And, and when you start talking about biblical masculinity and biblical femininity, this is where the pendulum just, well, what about, and then it swings into one ditch. And then what about, you get out of the ditch and you go to the next one, and you're just constantly falling into one side of the road or the other. So what do I mean by extreme sameness? This is erasing any and all distinction between male and female. So that, that's, that's large segments of our world. But it's also so-called evangelical feminism, which is a theological position called egalitarianism. So it's important for you to know these terms. I have them defined here for you. So egalitarianism, think equalism. This position teaches... That role distinctions, where a husband is the head of his household and head of his wife, and that only pastor elders can be men, that role distinctions, they would say, are a result of the fall and the curse. So roles of men and women did not come until Genesis 3, they would say. 
They would also say that the gospel removes any and all role distinctions between man and woman. So Jesus has lived in our place, died on the cross for our sins. He's risen from the grave, ascended into heaven. And now that we believe the gospel, think back to last week when we talked about Galatians. There's neither male nor female. It's a favorite text of egalitarians to say, see, Jesus has done away with all gender distinction and all roles. They're just part of the fall. And so egalitarians teach that men are not the head of their households, not the head of their wives, and that women can be preachers and senior pastors. They can be elders. That's what egalitarianism teaches. There's little offshoots and varieties, but that's the umbrella idea behind it. So the contrast position, which is what uh, we as a church believe is the biblical position, is complementarianism. Just think complement. Complementarianism is that God designed men and women to complement one another, not just physically, but also spiritually. And a gifted and assigned roles to men and women before the fall. And they, God assigned roles because of the creation commission and because of his gospel purposes. Think about our brief discussion earlier on Ephesians 5 and how the way the role of a man in his marriage and the way that he loves and dies for his wife and the role of a woman in marriage and the way that she responds, submits, and respects her husband is a portrait of the gospel. So um, it's actually pretty closely related to our understanding of who Jesus is and who the church is. So one danger when we talk about men and women is to fall into the trap of extreme sameness. The other one is to focus on extreme difference. This would be erecting uh, walls so high that there is no similarity between men and women. There is no overlap of traits that we possess. And any overlap or similarity are sinful. So let me, let me give you an example. Paul here in Thessalonians describes what he and his fellow missionaries, the church planters, what these church planters were like. He says to the church in Thessalonica, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children, so, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Pause. Those two verses, verses 7 and 8, Paul depicts their ministry like a nursing mom with a gentle newborn baby who can't even lift its own head, his or her own head. A baby's not in it. So was that sinful? When you have an extreme uh, difference perspective, when the stereotype of masculinity and femininity gets so entrenched beyond scriptural norms that any man who does anything that was, this is kind of what you were pointing out a little bit earlier, Mandy, that there's, that if a, for example, if a man does the laundry, because that is clearly a, a womanly task, I'm saying that hyperbolically, that he's in sin for doing the laundry. That would be an extreme difference perspective. And so someone who has an extreme difference perspective would, would probably have, um, had he been in that church, looked at these men and called them weak and effeminate men probably because they were like gentle nursing moms. 
because that's not how you expect a guy to act. But he's saying that's how they acted, and that was their heart disposition to them. But that's not all that he says. Keep going. In verse 9, it says, For you remember, brothers, then he goes on to say some things, but notice the shift familiarly to, okay, we were like nursing moms, but you're also our brothers. And then, verse 11, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So here you see these church planters, these missionaries, saying that they had these three different attributes. Siblings, like a nursing mom, and then like a dad telling you what to do. That's what they were like with the, with the church. So we have to guard against extreme difference. And let me st- spend some time explaining this more. So, for example, think of it this way. Both men and women are to manifest, for example, the fruit of the Spirit. Men and women are to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But they don't, we don't reveal the fruit of the Spirit in ungendered asexual ways. Now go back to what I was thinking, what I was charging us earlier, that there's this notion that we have where Christians can be functional Gnostics, where our gender is really just the, the physical biology, but not our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that we talk about how gender goes all the way down. It's the whole person because we're whole embodied beings. So what I'm trying to argue here is that like the same song through different instruments or light through a prism, godliness and holiness refract through biblical masculinity and biblical femininity in distinct yet complementary ways. So I want you to start thinking about what we, our inner person is not detached from our outer person, hardware and software are combined, and so men are masculine in the masculine ways that they, they exhibit the fruit of the Spirit and vice versa. It's not that we become genderless in the way that we love. Any questions on that? Well, I invite you to, to, to think about that because you start to press down and get into like the, the whatabouts. What does that look like practically? I would say just start paying attention to those, to those around you. Pay attention to the guys, pay attention to the ladies, and, and think about your relationships and your, and your friendships and, and gentleness. What does it look like for a man to be gentle? Does that necessarily mean that he's effeminate and womanly? Or can a man be gentle? Was, was, was Paul right to be like a nursing mother? But not in the way that uh, Bo was watching TikTok earlier. Okay, on the one hand, aptitudes and interests and intuitions and instincts and emotions and our physicality, etc., they overlap between the sexes. And yet, on the other hand, stereotypically, stereotypes exist and are bound up and they're expressed and they're displayed uniquely between the sexes. Exceptions do not create the rules and outliers do not create the norms. A godly, 
stereotype is helpful sometimes in locating a common pattern and expectation of the sexes, but a godly stereotype or a stereotype can be unhelpful when it becomes the sole definition of the sexes. For example, men are stereotypically stronger and more aggressive than women. So does this mean, or this does not mean that a woman who is stronger than a man or can beat up a man due to fight training is in sin, nor is the guy for being able to get beat up. Maybe you disagree with me on that. So I, I have, I've, I've been in a, uh, a, I was on a, a race before, um, and I, I was just running as fast as I could, which is slow, and this just petite lady just smoked me. It was like 2 a.m. We were running through the woods on this super long race, and um, that was amazing. And I was super impressed by that. And um, so clearly she was in sin. Okay, let's move on to the next point. But I, I want you to, to, to see, see what I'm getting at. Uh, if your stereotype is that a man must be strong and a woman must be physiologically weak, and women give birth, they're not physiologically weak. But the, the stereotypes that exist around that uh, about uh, daintiness or femininity, we have to be careful that we don't use some cultural norms to define those things. So, ladies, you can back squat. It's okay. Or not back squat. Invite your boyfriend or husband to back squat with you so he can back squat more than you. <laughs> there is a couple who is, they're in our church. I'm not going to name their names, but I should. And they're doing fight training together. And they invited me and some others to go for a free pass at Krav Maga, which is the eye, eye gouging and ear pulling. And when I was driving away, um, the husband was on a full mount on his wife with a bowie knife in his hand, just striking down. And she's like poking his eyes, her, his eyes out with her thumb, which was I tried to get my camera out to take a video of it, but I don't think that was sinful. But I just want you to understand that there's, there's stereotypes. So those are the two sides we have to be careful. Uh, uh, extreme sameness and extreme difference. Uh, we have to be aware of our cultural context of what we're raised in. And is this a cultural perspective, a family perspective that says this is what a man is we want to be careful that we are, are gathering from Scripture the definition of masculinity and femininity. And I want to paint that picture that um, if a lady can run a chainsaw, that's okay. And if a guy can't run a chainsaw, that's okay too. Or it's debatable. <laughs> that's true. That's true. You can't. I can run a chainsaw. Uh, any, any comments on these, this idea that, that because masculinity and femininity goes down to the core of our being and is inseparable from our, the hardware and the software, that even the idea that the fruit of the Spirit in your life will have masculine through a man and feminine through a woman? Yeah, Mandy. 
I'll just start saying, Mandy, any questions? Thank you for tolerating me. Um, so I just wanted to, like, what you were talking about, so one of the things that I think is incredibly heartbreaking about the mindset that's in our culture today is that when you have a woman who displays masculine traits in any way, any kind of masculine traits, they are now told, oh, well, maybe you're a man, secretly. And so, and I think it's so dangerous. And same with men. A friend of mine was telling me a story of a friend of his who had a really high voice, but was not gay or trans in any way, but all of his coaches would really like tease him and make fun of him, oh, you must be a girl, because of something he had no control over. And I just think that that's something that's really heartbreaking in our culture today, that there's this, oh, if you're different at all, it must mean you are this. Mm -hmm. And that's just, it's terrible. Mm -hmm. It is, it is. Uh, just one personal anecdote. So when, uh, when my Rachel, my wife, when we were just starting to date in uh, college, uh, so her degree was construction management. And when we were first married, her job was wearing a hard hat telling 55-year-old guys what to do as a petite young woman. When I went and visited her on the job site, she was uh, left by the contractor and she was framing an entire addition bedroom with a bathroom on a house by herself. So when I went home and told my buddies, they all went, oh, because I don't know how to frame anything. I have to text Scott Porter what kind of nails to buy. <laughs> so that would be an example where uh, my wife May is, is doing, was doing a profession that is characteristically dominated uh, by, by men who work in it, but she wasn't in sin doing it, and it's a real benefit to our marriage these days. <laughs> She's, the, okay, yeah. <laughs> All right. I, yeah. All right, it, it, okay, let's move forward. Let's, let me get out of this. Okay, so. 43, middle. So we're asking the question, we've, we've, uh, regarding its extreme sameness and extreme difference, Scripture's description of a man, a couple things in the beginning. A biological man is the seed-bearing, siring, slash begetting, slash fathering of the two binary image bearers. The biological woman is the egg-carrying, bearing, mothering person of the two. See our discussion earlier on the Hebrew tombs, Zakar and Nakeba. Um, we just have to point that out these days. God designed a man's biology and his physiology, as well as his internal drives, his aptitudes, his desires, and etc., such that he would do his God-given part to be fruitful, multiply, as well as subdue and exercise dominion over creation, and vice versa for the woman. So at the immaterial part of our being, so I want you to, I want to underscore this, that you can't separate masculinity and femininity from the hardware and software. It's we are embodied. Think about that whole previous point. We are unified wholes. In other words, men and women are physically and spiritually designed and gendered by God to be able to fulfill their respective role and fellowship. Embodiment is designed for fulfilling, for fulfilling the Great Commission. And um, 
Let's keep going. By God's design, a man will never be able to bear a child. He is physiologically incapable of doing so. Conversely, a woman will never be able to beget a child, the old school word for fathering, as she is physiologically incapable since she bears the egg, not the seed. But newspapers in the UK are, are, and, and various uh, psychology institutions are going to be changing the books to say that, that, um, that men can be pregnant and that men do give birth. What a man is for, biblically, is bound up in his created design as male and masculine. So in a number of ways, you can look at a guy and the way that he is built and designed and the way that he acts. Part of that is showing um, what God intends a man for. Same with a woman. Gender, as discussed above, encompasses the whole of embodiment and cannot be separated materially and immaterially. God designed our hardware and our software to not only match, but be inseparable. Masculinity and femininity refer to the whole person, not just the biology. And our world says it's just biology. The rest is a social construct. And so we're going to be seeing from Scripture is that God has a social construct a biblical worldview that he builds into us by his spirit with the word of God. So uh, masculinity and femininity or femininity refer to the whole person, not just biology. That is, the design of the body establishes expectations and norms for the inner person and vice versa. So one of the things that you can't do is you can't misgender people. Have any of you had training in misgendering and why that's bad? Is it on campus at all or is it just not so much? Any campuses? Some camp, yeah, a little bit. Misgendering is when you, hey man, how's it going? Oh, sorry, miss. Or, or vice, vice versa. And that's, that's key, tied into the whole pronoun uh, charades right now. They, them, whatever, whatever the, the pronouns are. It is, it is a grave offense to misgender somebody, but think about what we've seen in the previous weeks that God prohibits, when we're talking about modesty and what we do with our bodies at the, um, at the end of being embodied, that God disallows, he does not allow, he prohibits men from dressing in ways to be confused as a woman and vice versa, It's one of the things that scripture does. And so the Bible presumes that you ought to be able to be gendered. That is, that someone would look at you and not be confused as to whether you're, you're male or, or female. And part of that is just how we uh, present and act and speak and, and more in the world. And so um, that's why this last sentence says, the design of the body establishes expectations and norms for the inner person and vice versa. We're going to get into some Bible. This is going to set the stage for, um, I would encourage you to read Genesis 2 and 3 uh, in the coming weeks to help think through how these, what takes place in these two chapters is the planted acorn that sprouts across scripture to create the oak tree of what it means to be gendered. So I want to read to you uh, here in the text. 
and just listen, and I've underlined some key things to be aware of. So let's listen to Scripture. This is Genesis 2, beginning at verse 4. These are the generations of the heaven and earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plants of the field had yet sprung up, for Yahweh God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground Yahweh God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So it's up in the mountains. The name of the first river There's the names of all the rivers. Verse 15. Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Just just notice the details. Adam is created outside the Garden of Eden. He's formed, and then God puts him in the garden, which is in the east. So there's an area called Eden. In the east of Eden is the garden. It's on a mountaintop. God puts Adam in it. Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Then Yahweh God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam, Adam, the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that Yahweh God had taken from the man, he made into Isha, into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. Pause. Who who named the serpent? Adam did. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat it of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be 
God. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was, what does it say? Where, where was Adam when this was all going down? Right beside her. That's right. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. But Yahweh God called to the man, and said to him, where are you? That's singular. And he said, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's her fault. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's his fault. Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, God said, because, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And Yahweh God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Notice the irony. He was already in the image and likeness of God. Now he's like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore Yahweh God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Our purposes are to understand from the Bible what we learn about, now we're just focusing on biblical masculinity, 
and we'll also get femininity coming up. But let's just observe details from the text to be good interpreters. Number one, back up in 2.7, we see that Adam is formed first at some undisclosed period of time prior to Eve, long enough for him to name the animals. Adam is formed first, and then he's authorized by God to name creatures in the same way that God was naming creation in Genesis 1. So Genesis 1, God speaks and names, and it's good. And then now he creates Adam, and now Adam is commissioned by God to name all the living things. Observations. God could have formed Adam and Eve simultaneously, but he didn't. There's a time gap between them. God could have also formed Eve first, but he didn't. Eve made Adam first. God could, have God could have designated Eve to be there and co-name the animals with Adam, but God didn't. And God could have given Eve the responsibility to name the creatures, but he did not. And I emphasize there, if you just glance up on your page at uh, verse 20, um, once the fall happened, God renames Eve Eve. She was Isha before, which is the feminine form of Ish, man and woman. But now he names her Chaya. It sounds like a karate chop. That probably shouldn't have said that, but I did. So it's a noise that you make when you strike somebody. And Chaya means, well, mother of living in essence. By the way, I think Adam names um, Eve Eve as an exercise of gospel faith in the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. So Adam is saved, and he demonstrates his faith by the work of naming his wife Eve. Um, and then, spoiler alert, in Genesis 4, Eve will actually name um, Seth Seth as an act of faith, showing that she is saved, and she's also naming her son. So she does have some naming responsibilities. But I want to point out here that there's, the text is specific. God could have done it different ways, but he did it this way in terms of creation account, Adam first, and the naming. Keep going. God speaks in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2 to Adam the permissions. So eat a bunch of these things and the one prohibition. Don't eat this. So there was a lot of positive things, a lot of uh, affirmative good rules and permission that God gave. A strong implication of the way the text follows is we only see God speak to Adam in Genesis 2. And then we find out that Eve knows what God said in Genesis 3. And the implication of the text is that God, or is that rather that Adam told Eve what God said. It's a, it's a strong implication of the text. So that's an important detail to hold on to. Uh, Esha is formed from Adam's rib rather than in the same way Adam was formed from the ground. So both the man and the woman are uniquely and distinctly created. As we've labored in the previous weeks, they're both equally the image and likeness of God. But there is a creation order and there's a creation method. Adam from dirt Eve from the rib. 
that are theologically meaningful and significant, which when you get to the New Testament especially, and many of Paul's explanations for the roles of men and women in marriage and the home are all grounded in the pre-fall creation account of Genesis 2. So he doesn't ground the roles of men and women as a result of the fall or as a social construct or because of evil patriarchy. It's actually a gift from the patriarch, our father in heaven. And that'll become, we'll see those later. Other text observations. It was not good. This is a jarring, arresting, almost alarming statement when you're reading through the, uh, the beauty of Genesis 1 and 2. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then all of a sudden, it's not good. It was not good that Adam was alone. So God designs and designates Esha as Adam's helper. Um, 2.18. Let's think about the language here. I will make a helper fit for... Or the Hebrew can be rendered corresponding to him. The Hebrew for helper is etzer. And it's, if you've been around, we've talked about how Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper. This is not the same word. When you read the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek translators don't use paraclete in place of etzer here. That's just an important thing to know. Even so, the word helper is a designation in many places in the Hebrew Bible of the Lord himself. Psalm 121, the Lord is, uh, where does my help come from? It comes from the maker of heavens and earth. So helper is an exalted position that assists another. And it does not imply inferiority. As if Adam was more the image and likeness of God and Eve was less. So it doesn't imply inferiority. The idea of helper is not a clone, but a complementary companion. Parts that fit and work harmoniously together. Adam names Isha. And renames her after the fall Eve. So what we see at the end of chapter 2 is that marriage is not a societal construct, nor is it defined by people. It's a creation ordinance designed and defined by God that is the context and engine for the creation commission. We're going to finish here just on this comment. So if you look back in your notes at the end, um, it's underlined, it's towards the bottom of page 44 in your notes. Um, God presents Eve to Adam, or Isha to Ish, and Adam sings, breaks out into poetry, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she should be called woman because she was taken from man. But then Moses, as he writes this, gives us a theological grounding statement. Therefore, because God did this with Adam and Eve, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is what we call marriage. Marriage is invented by God in Genesis 2 
that verse 24, therefore man shall leave his father and mother. If you have the notes from last week, that's what Paul quotes in Ephesians 5.31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is not, in your notes, a societal construct, nor is it defined by people. Here's what that means. God has not given the authority or the right to any human being to change God's design or definition of what marriage is. We are going to, I doubt we're going to get into it, maybe in in the spring we will. As we begin to think through the creation commission, the creation commission of Filling, multiplying, subduing, and exercising dominion is the basis for civil government. God does not authorize governments to change or redefine what marriage is. They have no authority from God to do that. So it is an overreach and a sin to define it what God doesn't define it to be. So what's important here is this this is why um, we are passionate about staying true to marriage and defending its sanctity is a a word that older word that is used. And think back to the beginning. If Satan's goal is to make men not men and women not women and biblical marriage not marriage, then he can undo all of society. Because our first disciples, they're called children, are not being evangelized by seeing a gospel husband die to himself and love his wife as Christ loved the church, a gospel wife submit and respect to her husband, and they're not seeing other marriages do that. They're having everything destroyed and inverted. And so children are being discipled by culture with an anti-gospel, anti-marriage, anti-gender, anti-embodiment, and more. So that's why it's actually... A, a big deal. Um, there's, it's called sphere sovereignty, and God delegates authority to different realms, to the individual, uh, a certain amount to the household, to the church, and to the state. And no institution that God establishes is exhaustive in its authority over any other one. And so um, a church can overreach in our authority, and the state can overreach in its authority. And so when the Supreme Court made a decision to legalize same-sex marriage, in the Bible, that's a fiction, and it's just not true, and God does not recognize that. And it's a sin, and then in being a sin, and letting it be accepted in the culture, disciples our children and us to believe that it's, that it's okay when, when it's not. And it doesn't help people who enter into same-sex marriage. It hurts them further. So God cares about marriage, and we will get into marriage down the road, but I just want to say that and stop here and take any, in the last just few minutes, we're going to end here. We'll, we'll pick right up next time we meet, not next week, but the week after. Questions or comments? Mandy. Uh, and Mandy, any questions or comments? Just off that last point, um, what 
like coming from, so if you have a secular government, how would you recommend that they handle um, the idea of, of gay marriage? I mean, clearly you don't believe that it should be redefined from a government standpoint. So my question is, um, do we just say, you guys just have to do it in, in privacy of your own home and just not make it an official thing at all? Or would there be like, cause there's supposed benefits or whatever for it to be a legal union of some kind. So I'm just curious what you think the political perspective in a secular government should be on that, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think I do. Um, so um, I believed in secularism my whole life until I realized that it was a lie. And it's a fiction. It doesn't exist. There is, there is no such thing as secularism. Secularism is a fiction that is created to think that you can have a, a public square devoid of anyone's God. However, every person is a worshiper. And so the public square is a competition of gods. Just the capital G uh, so-called monotheistic religions uh, can't bring their gods into this, this square. Call it worldview, call it whatever you want. So when the politicians gather, they're arguing for a worldview, um, and it is religious to the core. So it's a religious decision to make same-sex marriage legal in the land. Um, that's a huge string to pull, right? When I say, thanks everybody for coming, good night. And I'll answer that question more, but, but I would say... What you see in scripture is you do see nations can make an argument that they, they uh, grow beastly. Think of Daniel's visions. And the more beastly a government is, the more in outright defiance and opposition to God's word and ways it is. The more Romans 1 is on display in that government. And uh, Revelation 1.6 is that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the ruler of the kings of earth. So Jesus is the president of Joe Biden. And Joe Biden's going to give an account. Same with Trump. Same with any. Same with Deasy, whoever our mayor is, or, and Ducey, our governor. They all are accountable to Christ for their judiciating and legislating and more. So it's a big question. I, I hope to explore it more in the spring. Stay tuned. Uh, let me close this in prayer. It's 801, and I, I'm happy to stay until my kids go crazy. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you've created us male and female. Um, Lord, we, we acknowledge that there is a evil foe called the devil who is building philosophies and ideologies that are demonic to the core, and taking people captive to do his will and to believe those things, not knowing that they are um, storing up wrath for the day of wrath, as you say in Romans 1 and Romans 1 and 2, but that they're also bringing not just wrath at the end of time, but hurting themselves in the present. I pray that you would give us a holy and righteous love and anger against the lies that they're believing. And that we, with grace and humility, would speak the truth and love to everyone and also stand boldly against those whose lies will hurt others and give us the wisdom how to navigate between those two. Lord, we pray that we would be found faithful men and women and that in our faithfulness we would um, be humbly repentant before you and treasure and prize the gospel of Jesus 
and to say, thank you, Lord, for saving us because we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it, but you gifted us with it. And so we only can know this truth and talk about it because you love us. So, Lord, that humbles us, and we thank you. We now pray for your blessing upon us as we dismiss. In Jesus' name, amen.